Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Well Read. I'm your host, Justin Chapman. We're at a very precarious point in the pandemic. While it looks and feels like we're in the home stretch, victory is not guaranteed. Among people who are vaccinated, deaths and hospitalizations are plummeting. Among people who are not vaccinated, cases and deaths are rising. What those people who are not going to get the vaccine don't realize is that once a majority of the population has gotten the vaccine and we open everything back up again, the virus is going to run rampant on those unvaccinated people. Unless they continue to essentially quarantine, which I doubt because the Venn diagram of those who flouted the lockdown rules and those who dismiss the vaccine are like the same overlapping circle, they'll be the only ones out there who are unprotected. Why do that to yourself? For the rest of us who have or are planning to get the vaccine, there's a light at the end of the tunnel at last. The CDC has released guidance saying vaccinated people can travel and gather with even unvaccinated people under certain conditions. The risk of getting infected and thus transmitting it to others is very low, though not non-existent. If we can get enough people vaccinated before the virus variants take hold, we have a clear shot of beating this pandemic. But it's not over yet, so don't let down your guard. Now comes the hard part healing ourselves after a year of cascading collective traumas, rebuilding our lives and our society, refocusing our priorities, helping those in need get back on their feet. There's a lot of work to do. I'm energized by it and ready to get to work. Here are some stories to keep an eye on internationally, nationally, statewide, and locally. As a dual US-Irish citizen, I've always been interested in Irish politics, particularly as it relates to Northern Ireland, I recently finished a book about the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, called A Secret History of the IRA, an in-depth look at the role they played in the Troubles, which was basically a war between Irish Republicans and Catholics against Northern Irish loyalists and unionists and the British from the 1960s to the 1990s. Recently, the loyalist group said they were withdrawing their support for the Good Friday Agreement because the Brexit deal means there are some restrictions on their trade with the rest of the UK but they supported the Good Friday Agreement before Brexit was even a thing. That's the sign of someone who willfully doesn't want to reach compromise or work in good faith. The Good Friday Agreement provides for a referendum on Irish unity. Sinn Féin recently called for the British government to set a date for that referendum. And I would like to throw my support behind that effort. It is long past time for all of the people of the island of Ireland to have their say about how they want to be governed, especially considering a majority of Northern Ireland voted to remain in the European Union. We'll talk more about the IRA with Irish journalist Ed Maloney later on this episode. He's the author of A Secret History of the IRA. The six-part HBO documentary about QAnon should be required viewing for every American. It's a deeply disturbing deep dive into the utterly bizarre people behind the platforms that Q posted on. Q is a supposed government or military insider who claimed Trump was going to arrest and expose a cabal of Democrats and other elites who were involved in an international child sex trafficking ring and ate babies. 
I don't know how anyone walks away from that documentary thinking that these people are anything but out of their damn minds. But QAnon has not gone away. Even after Trump's loss and after the January 6th Capitol insurrection, QAnon is now rebranding as a racist conspiracy that's anti-Chinese, anti-Jewish, and anti-vaccine. I'm very concerned about the exponential growth of people who have been radicalized during the pandemic. It was already on an upward trend and the pandemic really seemed to make some people's minds snap. It's going to be a tinderbox when everybody's back together again in public. The next couple of years are going to be intense. Also in Congress, as the battle over President Biden's multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill heats up, it's becoming very clear that the Democrats have got to get rid of the filibuster. The Democrats aren't going to get anything done otherwise. Mitch McConnell said Republicans will grind the Senate to a halt if they do that, but even if Democrats didn't get rid of the filibuster, Republicans would still do a scorched earth strategy when they're back in power. Either way, they'll say the Democrats were extremists. If Democrats want to use this small window of time when they hold power to get anything done on gun control, infrastructure, voting rights, and many other issues that a majority of Americans support, they've got to get rid of the filibuster. It looks like Californians are going to vote on whether or not to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. The petitioners needed 1.5 million signatures and they say they've got over 2 million. Officials have until April 29th to verify the signatures. If successful, the recall election would take place this fall and ask Californians if Newsom should be recalled and if so, who should replace him. Newsom said he believes the recall election will happen and he's already campaigning hard against it. Clearly there are sections of California that absolutely loathe him. In Lucerne Valley in the Mojave Desert at a roadside restaurant and bar called Cafe 247, they're selling shirts that say fuck Newsom and the state mandated floor markers that indicate where people should stand in line in order to be six feet apart say neuter Newsom. Look, Newsom's not perfect, far from it. But the measures he took during the pandemic were guided by health experts. If anything, governors from red states who didn't lock down their states are the ones who should be held accountable. A new survey from the Public Policy Institute of California said that if a special election to recall Governor Newsom were held today, 40% of likely voters say they would vote yes on removing Newsom, while 56% would vote no and 5% are unsure. This is a big waste of time. Pasadena Police Chief John Perez said this may be his last year of policing. The comment came during a virtual District 6 town hall meeting on public safety hosted by Pasadena City Council member Steve Madison on March 31st. The 55-year-old Chief Perez began his policing career at the age of 18 when he joined the Pasadena Police Department as a cadet in 1985. He then worked his way up through various assignments including patrol, community relations, internal affairs, special enforcement, SWAT, special investigations, and counterterrorism. He served as, the, as police commander and deputy chief of police from 2006 to 2016. Then in 2018, he was selected as chief of police after his predecessor, former chief Phil Sanchez, resigned from the department following a tumultuous tenure. Sanchez faced scrutiny for failing to remove two officers from patrol who beat Altadena motorist Christopher Balu during a traffic stop for his role in approving waivers that allowed former Pasadena Police Lieutenant Vaskin Gordikian to legally sell over 100 guns and for the 2016 death of 35-year-old Reginald Thomas Jr. while in police custody. Perez, on the other hand, has received praise for attempting to reform the department through implicit bias training, de-escalation techniques, and community policing initiatives. 
though his tenure has not been without its controversy as well. In August, Pasadena police officer Edwin Dumaguinden shot and killed 32-year-old Anthony McLean in the back as he ran away from a traffic stop. Perez said officers recovered a gun from the scene that they claim McLean grabbed out of his waistband as he ran and that he turned towards the officers as he was shot, though the body cam video Perez release does not show that. Let's patch in our guest, Irish journalist, Ed Maloney. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Ed Maloney is an Irish journalist who now lives and works in New York City. For most of his professional life, he covered the Troubles in Northern Ireland, writing for the Irish Times and the Sunday Tribune. A former Irish journalist of the year, he has published work in a variety of newspapers and magazines in Ireland, the UK, and the United States, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New York Daily News, the New York Post, The Economist, The Independent, The Guardian, and The New Statesman. Maloney is the author of three books dealing with aspects of the Irish Troubles, A Secret History of the IRA, Paisley from Demagogue to Democrat, and Voices from the Grave, Two Men's War in Ireland. He has also helped to produce documentaries for the BBC, Channel 4, London Weekend Television, and a recent RTE documentary, Voices from the Grave, which was based on his book and was shortlisted for Best Documentary Prize by the Irish Film and Television Academy. Um, so, so Ed is, you know, as an Irish American journalist myself, I've always been fascinated by the troubles and the IRA, and uh, and I really enjoy your work on it. Um, you know, for those who who aren't that familiar about Irish history, could you give us a very quick top line, you know, one minute or so history lesson on Ireland? Uh, you know, the 1916 rising into the troubles, to the peace agreement, just the the, the highlights. Yeah, certainly, and thank you for the for the, for the very generous. Compliment. Um, well, you know, there's been a troubled relationship between England and Ireland, or Britain and Ireland, if you prefer, you know, for hundreds of years, mostly to do with the fact that they are very close to each other and that uh, for all sorts of political reasons, Ireland could be used as a jumping off spot for an invading army from France or from Germany or from wherever. Um, and therefore, the Brit- British felt that they had a, a responsibility to their own citizens to keep a hold on Ireland. And that set the stage for, uh, you know, right, really modern history. And, you know, the, the modern IRA campaign against um, the British rule has its roots in, in that. The 1916 rising has its roots in that. Um, now, the, the last sort of successful uh, struggle for Irish independence at the beginning of the uh, 20th century was, was partially successful in, in as much as that the majority of the country, that is 26 of the 32 counties, became independent. But the other six remained, may, remained British, but with a very sharply divided population, with about 60% of the population being pro-British and being the descendants of people who had been brought over from England and, and Scotland to to uh, take over land and to make the place safer for British rule, and the the local natives who were mostly Irish Catholics, um, and the, the legacy of that was that that state could only really exist and survive on the basis of discrimination, and in that sense, it very closely resembled, although. By no means was it as severe or as oppressive as the southern states of the United States, but the, the parallels are are, are not, um, you know, they they are they are reasonably close enough. 
so it was just it was a state which was unstable from the very beginning because there was a, a a very strong large minority which was if you like oppressed and there came a point in time when you know the catholic population developed a, a more uh, affluent middle class uh, demanded more of life than their their parents and certainly their grandparents and that took the shape as it did in in deep south of a demand for civil rights one man, one vote, one man, one job, one man, one house, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the pressure was then on the unionist government to concede to those demands. And of course, they were on either unwilling or unable to do so. And that set the stage for violence in 1969, out of which a long dormant IRA, which had, you know, last seen real serious activity back in the 1950s and then for only a few months, um, suddenly became a major player. And it became a major player primarily because of the violence that was meted on uh, Catholic neighborhoods during that time. And, they, and the IRA came out of that uh, and grew in strength and popularity to the point where uh, it eventually um, has secured a place at the negotiating table with both the British and the Unionists, which is where we are now, more or less. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I really loved your book, uh, Secret History of, of the IRA. Um, how, how did you get such behind-the-scenes access with this with this very secretive group? Well, don't forget, um, you know, I've been working at this story for a long time. So, you know, I had obviously met quite a few people um, uh, along along the course of, of my work. Secondly, you know, um, the peace process was not wholly welcomed inside the IRA. There was a very, very large, in fact, the majority of activists, the majority of gunmen and gunwomen, um, those who, who took up weapons for the IRA, they were opposed to Jerry Allen's peace process. The, the, the support came from the wider base, Sinn Féin base in particular. Now, when you have a situation like that, where there's a division, there's always people who want to talk. And, you know, that's where we journalists make our living. And in the, I, found, I found that period, you know, um, it, it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was. It was a simple job, but it wasn't difficult to find people who were who were willing to tell you some of the the, the most innermost secrets. Um, because in, in a in a conflict situation, internal conflict situation like that, uh, people have reason to talk to to the world and talk to the, and they do that through journalists like myself. But you've got to like make up your mind that you're going to go and talk to these people. And unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues in, in the media in Ireland at that time took the view that, well, if you went and talked to people who were opposed to this, you were really taking sides with them. I saw it slightly differently or very differently, in fact, which is that, hang on a sec, these are the people who are going to give you documents and are going to tell you stories <laughs> and are going to tell you what's going on. And that's what you're about as a journalist. That's what you're supposed to do, for God's sake, you know. But there was an enormous amount of resistance to that within within uh, within my colleagues, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, subjectively for me, it, it seems like the, the 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 British and the Unionists almost created this situation in the first place by being yeah. antagonistic, attacking Catholic neighborhoods, and then yes. the IRA came out of this need to defend themselves, basically. Yes, yes, and, they were a defensive group. Right. Yeah. And I, I, it seems like if the police, the military violence, uh, you know, wasn't so harsh against the Catholic communities, the IRA likely wouldn't have grown so, so big. You know, I know you have your reporter hat on, but you've, you've studied the situation up close. What, what is your perspective about, um, uh, not, not, the, not where the blame lies necessarily, but, but you know, about 
who who actually started the situation in the first place? Well, I mean, it's you know, it's 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 a very difficult thing to to ascribe responsibility for something as huge as that. But you know, it does has it have its roots in in the fact that that the British occupied Ireland and governed it against the, the will of most of the people. And you have to go, you have to start from that that point of view. And why why are the unionists there? Why did they? You know, what is their purpose in life being in Ireland? They're there. They were brought over there primarily to make the place safer for the British to rule mm-hmm. and to create a division within that country. And unfortunately, if you look at the British, the history of the British Empire, you know, divide and rule was a cardinal principle throughout a lot of the colonies that the British occupied, you know, including the United States um, for, for a long time. Um, so, uh, you know, if you were going to prescribe responsibility, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the prime responsibility is a British one. Right. And, and um, you know, wh- why do you think uh, um, uh, Jerry Adams conceded on the issue of the consent principle, the, the, the union, unionist veto, veto and the secret talks in the 80s, uh, you know, before the Army Council or rank and file knew anything about it? Do, do, you, do you see that as a, a tacit acknowledgement that he knew the IRA couldn't win militarily and so they had to shift to the electoral strategy? You know, it's, it's, that's a very interesting question and it's, it's, it's not easy to, to answer it. Um, Part of the part of the answer lies in Jerry Adams himself, in in as much as that uh, he was a different generation of Republican than his parents. Both of his parents were uh, were active in, in Republican movement, and indeed his grandparents as well. Um, but he came from a generation which you know had its first taste of 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 political life with um, with the civil rights movement, and um, that was political. That was political activity, and when the the split came within the IRA in 1969 over which direction to take, either violent route um, back to armed struggle or a more political route. Um, Adams was on, you know, was undecided, I think, for a, for a good period of time. Although I think at the end of the day, the fact that most of his family and his in-laws went with the provisionals was a big deciding factor in him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I remember mem- remember talking to him about this way back, you know, in the early 1980s when, when, uh, when he sort of emerged as a political leader. And the IRA at that time was, was, was divided over the, uh, over the issue of the armed struggle and whether they should get involved in political activity. And in order to get involved in political activity, you would have to give a measure of recognition to the existence of the state. Mm-hmm. And the diehard um, Republican view was you never gave recognition to the state because that was uh, the first step on a, a very slippery path, which is going to lead to, lead to compromise and, and surrender and so on so and so forth. Well, well Adams at that, you know, at that time told me that he... Was he was very much open to the idea of what dropping what they called abstentionism, which was to abstain from political activity, normal electoral activity, etc. He was in favour of of taking of taking that road, um, and therefore was on the same side as the official IRA, which was the more sort of left wing political IRA. But he disagreed with the uh, I, the official IRA on the on the use of violence and the reformability of the Northern Ireland state. So he went with the provost on that, but there was a there was um, a, um, a dualism about his politics, mm-hmm. which which I think you, you can look at that and say that's where the roots of the peace process came from within his own mind, if you like. Right. Then there is the fact, and this this is where the 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 story can get very tangled and very dark, 
It's the extent to which um, the IRA had been by, and why this had happened, uh, the IRA had been so thoroughly infiltrated by British intelligence by the middle to eight, late 1980s um, that it was actually incapable of, of continuing a war against the British, and Adams knew that very well. You know, the question of how we got there, of course, is a different one altogether, because a conspiracy theory would be that, you know, it was in the interest of some people in the IRA that it should end up in that particular area uh, of activity, and that little was done to stop this erosion, this infiltration of informers when, when it should have happened, you know. And then, of course, there were things like the hunger strikes. You know, the hunger strikes opened the way to political activity. And, um, you know, that's a very dark period. Again, you know, you have the, the account that Richard O'Rourke gave. Um, he was a, a, a leading uh, figure in the, in the prison um, regime, the Sinn Féin uh, IRA prison regime at the time. Mm -hmm. And his, his view very much is that... Um, is that there was uh, um, uh, a very promising effort, uh, which he was in favour of, and the other leaders of the jail of the IRA inside the jail were in favour of ending the hunger strike early on to save lives and to get they would get sufficient concessions for them to be able to do this, and that was essentially um, undermined by the outside leadership and. The, if you follow that thinking to its logical conclusion, it is that the leadership outside wanted the uh, organization to become more and more political. In order to do that, they needed to have people dying on the hunger strike and they needed to have hunger strikers standing for election, which is exactly what happened. That uh, prepared the stage for the uh, entrance, the entry of Sinn Féin into electoral politics. Mm -hmm. Very dark period, again, full of questions, more questions than there are answers. Mm -hmm. um, but it's within those very controversial routes that the peace process also comes out. And that's why it's also full of these, these sorts of questions as well. Yeah, it's kind of a remarkable shift that Adams did from 69 to mid to, to late 80s. And, and, and how he very carefully, methodically over time brought uh, the IRA and Sinn Féin along with him um, to, to accomplish this uh, peace deal that seemed unthinkable for the yes. longest time. Um, yes. do, do you think the IRA was successful um, in, in any way? What were some of the biggest mistakes and biggest successes? Um, well, it was, it was obviously successful. It's very difficult to deny this, that they, they, the violence that the IRA was able to uh, get onto the streets in the early 1970s destabilized Northern Ireland to such an extent that um, the, the local government collapsed. It, was, it became unsustainable politically for the British to, to stand over this, this, um, um, this unionist regime. Uh, so that was their, that was their, ma that was their major, major success. Um, their mistakes have been multi multitude of mistakes. Um, uh, you know, use of the bombing campaign, for example, killing civilians. Um, you know, look at some of the turning points in uh, in in the peace process. Enniskillen was one of those when those bombs went off on uh, Remembrance Sunday, killing a lot of people who were just gathered to remember their war dead. And this is sort of like a sacrosanct. Uh, occasion for, for both sides in many ways, you know, that type of activity uh, undermined them, you know, um, but they also raised all sorts of dark questions about who authorized and why this was authorized and why that, that was authorized. And these are questions which we'll probably never get answers to. 
Mm-hmm. And, and have you talked to Adams about your secret history book? Does he think it's an accurate portrayal? Uh, no, we haven't talked about it. No, in fact, I've had very little, very little contact with the the um, uh, mainstream provisional movement since uh, since the book came out. Mm. Um, uh, who, who do you do we know who betray, and who do you think betrayed the the ex son and, and and talk about that uh, dynamic for a little bit? Well, you see, this 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 is one of the easy intriguing questions. If you if you read a secret history, the first chapter is about the the, the loss of the accent, and with the loss of the accent, um, the IRA lost its last military card, if you like. Right? The the contents of the accent, you know, were larger and and um, uh, p- potentially more violent than anything that had been brought over to Ireland from Libya prior to that, and yet it was all lost. So it was the big. It was the big uh, haul for the British, and it was undoubtedly it was it was betrayed. And if you speak to people who were involved at that level in the IRA at that time, they will tell you stories about how people like McGuinness was briefing people. Martin, this is Martin McGuinness, who was chief of staff mm-hmm. for a, a long a, a lot of this period of time, and was also in charge of the IRA in Northern Ireland in the north uh, during this time as well. Uh, he was briefing people he shouldn't have been briefing people who organized or parts of the IRA that subsequently uh, were shown to have had informers in their ranks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was that done deliberately? Uh, Why was it done? Why was there never an investigation? Normally when, um, you know, uh, there is clear evidence that an informer has been at work, there's an official IRA inquiry into it, which is, you know, a heavy duty thing, you know. Uh, There was no inquiry into the loss of the accent at all. Why not? You know, mm-hmm. uh, so all these dark questions, um, very, very few answers, but, you know, the, those questions will linger. The Exxon chapter in, in your book, I think that would make a great scene in a movie. I think that it, I don't know how uh, there hasn't been a movie made based on your book. I think, you know, I could I could totally see a, an in-depth modern film portrayal of the IRA mm. based on scenes from, from this book. I'd love well, you to- never know. Yeah. Your secret history book ends in the early 2000s with the, the yeah. decommissioning of IRA weapons. What are some of the major plot points that have happened happened since then? And and is Brexit threatening the the uh, to to unravel the the peace agreement? Well, you know, I'm I'm a wee bit loath to make judgments on that because I'm not there, and, and I think you really need to be there for that type of thing. But uh, you know, I'm a wee bit dubious about the claims that are made about about Brexit, Brexit, um, you know, changing the, the political game in, in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, the, the, I just, I just find it difficult to, to accept that, um, um, the, the, you know, the, the fact that the British are no longer in Europe is somehow going to influence in a very, you know, deep and meaningful way politics in Northern Ireland because the you know the the, the roots of, of that conflict are still there and Brexit is neither here nor there in, in terms of the history of the place you know so I'm 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 very skeptical about that and I think it's been I think it's been exaggerated I think I think uh, you know there are people who've got um, flags to fly in relation to this particular issue you know and uh, they're doing that uh, so I'm 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 skeptical about it have you heard about the, uh, the recently the the loyalist paramilitary groups redrawing uh, withdrawing support from the Good Friday Agreement um, because of elements of the the Brexit deal recently? 
Yes, I have, but I also question whether these groups are significant at all nowadays. You know, compared to uh, you know during during the, the worst time of the, the the troubles, they they seem to have deteriorated largely into criminal gangs now. You know, involved in drug dealings and robberies and mm-hmm. goodness knows what. Um, and um, you know, when they make a threat like that, how much support do they have in the communities that they come from? for that type of thing i you know i'm somewhat doubtful of that mm-hmm. and and on the ira side are they still real relatively active uh well the ira still exists it's much smaller in numbers it's immensely rich by the way has mm-hmm. enormous enormous amount of money they they robbed a bank in belfast of whatever it was 30 million half of which was in money that they could actually use you know it was old notes and stuff like that uh, they've invested in properties. They've invested in businesses. They are still there. Um, they're, they still have weapons. Um, they've run down the size of their operation, but they are still there. And uh, let me ask you a, a wider philosophical question. Do you think the island of Ireland will ever be reunited? I don't know. I mean, uh, I'd be foolish to, to give an answer to that question. Um it's possible, but if it is ever uh, united, uh, is it going to be um, totally separate from Britain, or or will there still be some sort of British link there? Um, and what is the what is going to be the relationship between uh, the Unionist or Protestant population and the rest of the country? That has that has to be has to be decided. So, you know. Because of the peace process, I think there's been a tendency for people to be a wee bit over-optimistic about the future um, and, and to, ne- to neglect to recognise that the root causes of um, the problem are still there in many ways, you know. Um, and um, as long as those root causes are there, uh, I find it difficult to see that happening. It, it, may, it may happen, but if it does, it'll take a long, long time for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your insight. My pleasure. Take care. Now. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in. If you need recommendations for Goodreads, check out Fidel and Che by Simon Reed Henry, a dual portrait of the complicated friendship between Fidel Castro and Ernesto Che Guevara, and a chronicle of the revolution they launched in Cuba in the 1950s and 60s. How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, which examines the latest research about how LSD, mushrooms, and other psychedelics are being used to provide relief and treat people suffering from conditions such as depression, addiction, and anxiety. And keep an eye out for his new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, an exploration into the powerful human attraction to psychoactive plants, coming July 6. Something Deeply Hidden by Sean Carroll, a theoretical physicist and cosmologist at Caltech who has written several books that take extremely complex topics such as the nature of time and space-time and writes about them in, in an accessible and interesting way. This book is about quantum mechanics, specifically the Everetti and many worlds theory, which envisions our universe as just one of numerous parallel worlds that branch off from each other every nanosecond without intersecting or communicating, which differs from the concept of the multiverse, which pictures many self-contained universes in different regions of space-time. And finally, check out Hamilton Morris's reissue of a pamphlet from the 1980s about psychedelic toads. Popular imagination has it that licking a certain toad will make you hallucinate, but that's based on incorrect media reports from the 80s and 90s. What really happened was 
an environmentalist, anti-nuclear activist, artist, and independent researcher from Denton, Texas, named Ken Nelson, writing under the pseudonym Albert Most, wrote and self-published a pamphlet called Bufo Alvarius, the Psychedelic Toad of the Sonoran Desert in 1983. He was the first known person to have gathered that specific toad, squeezed its venom out of his paratoid glands, then dried and smoked the venom containing the chemical 5-MeO-DMT that caused him to hallucinate. And his true identity was unknown until shortly before his death of Parkinson's disease in 2020. Hamilton Morris, a documentarian and scientific researcher who investigates the chemistry, history, and cultural impact of various psychoactive drugs, interviewed Ken Nelson slash Albert Most for his show, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia on Vice TV, and subsequently spearheaded a reprinting of Ken's long-lost pamphlet as a way to honor Ken's contributions to science and his concern for the continued survival of the Sonoran Desert Toad. Ken and Hamilton and others are concerned that too many people will seek out the Bufo Alvarius Toad in the Sonoran Desert in the American Southwest and thus lead to the depopulation of the toad. And they advocate for a synthetic version of the potent hallucinogen 5-MeO-DMT, as a way to ensure the sustainability of the toad population. The pamphlet, now in its fourth printing, is a fascinating artifact of drug history. I believe the latest pressing is sold out, but keep an eye out at psychedelictoadofthesonorandesert.com for future pressings. Okay, before we go, let's check in with our senior toddler correspondent, Sienna. <laughs> Phone away? Yeah. Okay. Great advice, Sienna. Let's all spend a little less time on our phones and a little more time enjoying the stark beauty all around us. That's it for this episode. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read once a month. You can find this show on YouTube and the Pasadena Media TV channel. Check for showtimes at pasadenamedia.org or watch it on their streaming app. And stay tuned for a new show about Pasadena politics and news that I'll be hosting on Pasadena Media soon. I'm Justin Chapman signing off. Learn more about my work at justindouglaschapman.com and sign up to receive my email newsletter to get updates on what I'm working on at justinchapman.substack.com slash subscribe. And remember, a life well read is a life well spent. So go read a book. Till next time. <laughs>